before you seat it. <laughs> I shouldn't be the only one standing. Come on. Reach over and take that hand next to you. I want to pray this morning. And it's always a pleasure and honor to be with you guys. What a great church. You're blessed. Tell somebody, I'm the most blessed person I know. Father, we're so grateful for this time. We seize this opportunity in this moment to get into your word, dear God. And we thank you for receptive hearts. We thank you, Father, for pursuit of your purpose in every dimension of our life. We thank you, dear God, for this day. And regardless of the circumstances of this past week and what may have happened, the, the great times, the upheaval, whatever, dear God, this is still the day the Lord has made. And we're going to rejoice. We will to rejoice in it. So we thank you and we give you glory in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. If you take your Bibles, or whatever means you have to get to the Scriptures, turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7. And this morning I want to deal with set a fire, fan the flame. In 2 Chronicles, chapter 7, starting at verse 12, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I would hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. For my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. We see that Solomon had prayed a prayer of dedication for the house of the Lord, and God is responding to that. And he's established the fact that there is a promise on this house, but there's also a warning for the people of God. Talk about a warning for a moment. In Hebrews chapter 2, there is this charge that we pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we begin to drift. See, it's important because the issue of drifting, drifting is when we come to a place where our faith, which was anchored in God's word, has been uprooted. And that we're no longer anchored in God's word. Therefore, we begin to drift from it. And drifting, the deception of drifting, is the belief that you're standing still when in actuality you're moving. And so you were anchored in God's word by faith, but now you begin to drift away from it. Further and further away from it. And as you get further away, you find yourself at a place where you begin to see your perception of things have changed. It used to be so centered in God's truth. Now things, your perception has changed. Your perception of God has changed. Your perception of purpose and calling and destiny has changed. Now you're at a different place. And what used to be considered wrong is now right. What was abnormal is now normal because you are no longer looking at life through the lenses of God's word. And so we end up, we can end up drifting. It's so subtle, you don't even realize it, and you find yourself far removed from the plan and the purpose of God in your life. It is said in Revelation that Jesus, Jesus, the first, the last, the alpha, the omega, the beginning of the end, that Jesus is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. 
The Living Bible says, and it refers to it as candlesticks. Well, what do you do with a candlestick? You light it so it can bring illumination to the room. Here, the candlesticks, the golden lampstands represent the church. The church is intended to be lit and on fire. There is to be a fire burning within the church. The church so it can illuminate and reveal the very heart and passion of God. Well, Jesus is walking. He's in the midst of the churches, the candlesticks. And he begins with the church of Ephesus. And he begins to speak to them. He says, now, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, your endurance, how you test those who call themselves to be apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false. And so he's celebrating the church of Ephesus. And what he says about this church, any church would love to have Jesus say that about them. But then there's verse 4, when Jesus says, but I have this against you. Now, no church wants to have Jesus. The head of the church say, I have this against you. He says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, how a church with so much tenacity, conviction, and consistency come to a place where Jesus says you have left your first love? Because they were advancing the kingdom. They were serving in the kingdom where they were giving themselves to the task of the purpose of God. So here they are serving the kingdom. There's one problem. They forgot the king. They were engaged in ministry service but they forgot what they were actually doing it for. And so they came to this place that Jesus says, now you have left your first love. You left that springtime, passionate love relationship that once consumed you with God. And they had drifted away. Well, let's back to Solomon again. So Solomon has built this incredible edifice for God, this amazing place for the glory of God, literally for the glory of God. And he understood something. This is so key that it cannot be the house of God without the presence of God. I'm going to say it again. It cannot be the house of God without the presence of God. What makes it the house of God is that God is present in the house. Help somebody next to you and say, it's all right. It's all right to tell them amen. <laughs> Turn to somebody and say, if you really want to get them going, say preach. Go ahead. Preach. <laughs> and so here we see Solomon is engaged in this process and he realized they must take the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and bring it into the house of the Lord. And so we see in chapter 5 of 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, and verse 11, it says, When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to the vision. And we see that the Levitical singers and their sons and kinsmen, and they would begin to bring instruments and, and celebration and, and the symbols and all the, to begin to celebrate the goodness of God. 120 priests began to blow the trumpet. It was a celebration. The presence of God was in the house. And then we see here in verse 13, and in unison with the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one 
voice to praise and to glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they had, when they praised the Lord saying, he indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud of glory of the Lord that filled the house. The glory of God came in the house so much so that they couldn't even stand to minister. They couldn't even function properly anymore because the glory came. Now that tells us something. Because why do we minister? We minister for the glory of God. So if the glory shows up, it's all right. It's for his glory. And if the glory disrupts my service, that's what I'm serving for. And the glory showed up. And they couldn't stand. They, 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 they found themselves falling in the face of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's the manifestation of the weight of the value of his presence. See, understand, we can say gold has value, but you don't know how much value it has until you weigh it. So Isaiah had that revelation. Isaiah was standing in the presence of God and he looked and he, after he looked and saw everything and the, and the cherubim and all the wonderful sounds that were being made and the celebration of how great God is, he said, woe is me. Because he understood how much weight God had and how much weight he didn't have. See, when you understand the greatness and glory of God, you see he is the heaviest one in the room and that he deserves the greatest glory. I know we do this. I do it. We do it. Every church does it. Well, maybe not every church, but a lot of good churches do it. We worship God at the beginning of the service, right? But see, and then the speaker comes and speaks. And, and somehow, in many ways, that seems like that's the main event of the service. But in actuality, actuality, the preacher, like in the good old days, the preacher is the cartoon before the movie. The really, the real thing is about him being glorified and him being lifted up. So we've got to come to a place now reigniting ourselves in passionate worship of Almighty God. Okay, so let's look at this. So they begin to celebrate and, and honor God in chapter 7 in verse 1. Now when Solomon had finished praying, look at this. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house because a house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled, filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house bowed down on pavement, on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord saying, truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. So we see the fire came down. But guess what happened? Before the fire came down, they had to prepare a sacrifice. See, if you have a need for the fire of God in your life, it's a statement. It's a statement that you've got to offer something up. 
you got to give up something because something is standing in the way between you and your renewed passion for God. Now, many times it could be something we know that there are things that stand in the way. We can always think about, okay, if something stands in the way, it's something bad. You know, it's some habit, some sinful activity. I got to get rid of that. Sometimes it's something good. Sometimes something good can get in the way that stands between us, not because it's bad, but because it has taken precedence over God. How many here want to get married who are single? Anybody? Okay, God heard the six of you. The rest of you. There were six of you. The rest of you can serve the Lord the rest of your life with your singleness. The kingdom will celebrate that. No distractions. Giving yourself fully for the Lord. Okay, let's take two. Any people here who are single who want to get married? Hercules, Hercules. Okay, so you can have a desire for marriage, a strong desire for marriage. You want to get married. Now, I know people who really want to get married and have a strong desire to be married. And there's nothing wrong. That's great. Uh, We celebrate that desire to get married. And that's a good thing. But what happens when that becomes a driving factor of your life? When everything conforms around your pursuit to get married, you, you, you come to church, you're thinking, okay, do I have the right outfit on? Am I all right? Is everything together? Because you know what? The right person may be there today and everything. And so you're, you're, you're driven by your pursuit to get married. At that point, it moves from being a loving desire to get married to a lust for marriage. Not because it's wrong, but because it's out of order. And so good things can stand in the way of us as we drift away from God. And the thing about it, the deception, remember the deception here is the belief that you are standing still when in actuality you are moving. So sometimes you don't even realize how far away you are from the plan and the word of God. And so here, there is this realization that the fire comes after you have offered up the sacrifice, after you have given up that which indeed is standing in the way of your renewal, your, your passion for God. And And it's here in chapter 7 that we see that God is responding to Solomon. Now, if your fire has gone out, then then you need to reignite your fire. If your fire is small, you know, maybe it's gone down through issues and pressures and situations in life, and and your fire is very diminished, then maybe you just need to get it going so you can fan it so it can spread. But you got to engage the process. You can't just sit there and watch God, I'm waiting for you to send the fire. He says, I'm waiting for you to make the sacrifice. God, I need you to do something. He said, I need you to do something. See, many times we want renewal from the outside in. God wants it from the inside out. He wants us to begin to engage the process of a new beginning. And so here, Solomon has prayed a prayer of dedication for the house of God. And God is responding and God gives a promise. He says, understand in this house, my presence and glory will be in this house. And in this house, understand something. My ears will be large. I'll be attentive to your prayers. And in this house will flow divine favor in the light of my presence. But then he gives them a warning. He says, understand something. When you look around and you notice it hadn't rained in a while. 
and it hasn't rained and, and, and you go and you look and look and look and there's no rain and it begins to cause devastation and the vegetation begins to dry up and you are in a drought. Understand God says, I'm doing something. And he says, when you look around and then the locusts come and they devastate all your productivity and, and you don't see any growth anymore because they, it's being destroyed by the locusts. God says, I'm doing something. He says that when you look and you see pestilence break out and, and mass disease happen, and, and, and when, you, when you see that happen, understand, he says, I'm doing something. He says, I'm trying to get your attention. Something has gone wrong. You have drifted away. You have lost your fire. I'm trying to, in a, in a very clear point of discipline, trying to bring you back. See, what is the, what is the goal of discipline? To help us to turn around. When you discipline your children, you're trying to get them back on the right path. So that's why God wants to discipline us because he would rather discipline Israel rather than bring judgment upon them. Discipline keeps a door open. Judgment closes the door. He said, I want you to turn around. I want you you to come back. So I am tapping you. It's like I'm tapping you on the shoulder. I'm saying, there are things I want to get your attention. It's time to come around. It's time to come back. I I need you to see some things. Anybody ever felt that tap of God? That things happen in life? And I think there's a tendency for us as Christians to say, well, you know, when we go through something, especially if we get lost in the deception that we're standing still when in actuality we've been moving, then we can find ourselves at a place where we are at that place and, and we begin to say, well, these things are happening. That's just life happening. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, no, no. Understand, you are a child of God. There's calling and destiny and purpose on your life. Things are not just happening. See, God is trying to get your attention because he causes all things to work together for good. To those who love him and are called according to his purpose, God is manipulating circumstances in order to get you you to the place where he needs to take you. He is changing things and causing things to happen because he says, I need you to get on board with me. And he says, understand, I need you to get on board with me because you have become bored with me. So he's saying here, we got to ask the question, how can, I, how can I set that fire? How can I come to a place of fanning the flames and, and getting to a new level of passion in God? In verse 14, he says, or verse 14 says, and my people, my people, my people. Can, can I stop for a moment? That when things happen in the land, God is not looking for the general population He's looking for his people to do something. The state of affairs rests in the hands of the people, the people of God who have the capacity to connect with heaven. And he said, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I would hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. So we see something. There are four main words in that verse. Humble, pray, seek, turn. Humble, pray, seek, turn. Humble, pray, seek, 
turn. Let's walk, it, let's walk through this. So first, there has to be humility. You've got to humble yourself. To humble yourself, it's, it's the idea of coming and, and releasing all independence. I knew you were going to shout after I said that. <laughs> releasing all independence, all self-sufficiency, which amounts to pride. And what is pride? But it's saying to God, my ways are better than your ways. My plan is better than your plans. Now, how many know we don't verbalize that? We don't say, God, my ways are better than yours. But our lifestyle, we convey it by the decisions we make. We do things without God. Do you know the charge of scripture is seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you? Do you know that word first in the original language in the Greek language is? First. (laughs) Seek ye first. The kingdom of God should be sought first above everything else. And so humility is coming to a place where I recognize I need to put God first. And I know that's a challenge. That is a challenge because self-reliance is so easy to slip into. Independence is so we from childhood on up. We've, it's become second nature for us to want to do our own thing, to try to figure out things in our own way. But see, those are indications of the fact that if we begin to do that, we separate ourselves from God. Oh, no, I'm not saying he doesn't reside within you. Of course he does. I'm not saying you're not saved. Of course you are. What I'm saying is when you're prideful, you separate yourself from the counsel of God, the guidance of God, the provision of God, the grace of God. Because, see, understand something. When I say the grace of God, I'm not talking about saving grace. Saving grace. No, that's God meets us in saving grace. I'm talking about living grace. For the Bible says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, saving grace may not have a condition, but understand, living grace has a condition. You've got to humble yourself for God to rest his grace upon your life. Humble. Humble yourself. Ask somebody next to you, are you humble? How did they answer? I love it when you read in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and you discover Moses. Instead of Moses, that he's the most humble man in all the earth. Guess who wrote the first five books of... I guess it took humility to confess that you were humble. Humble yourself and pray. What is prayer? But to realign your will, to realign your will with God, because prayer in the purest sense of the word is agreement with God. It is, in essence, you're echoing back to God, his mind for your life. You're not trying to pray something that God says, what was that? I've never heard that before. Jesus, listen to this. No, your prayer, <laughs> your prayer is something that's consistent with the mind and the ways of God. So understand there are things you can't pray. You can't say, God, it's, oh, it's been a terrible week at work. And I just feel like, 
I feel like I have not been treated well. There's, no, there's inequity regarding me, and, and I just feel like they, they, they're stabbing me in the back. So, God, I'm praying right now that you just create an opportunity for me just to steal some stuff. Father, I'm in a, a challenging marriage. The passion has gone out. It's like we're just two people in the house. We hardly talk. So if you can just send me a, a new person into my life. Okay, see now, God is not going to favorably answer that prayer request. I didn't say favorably. He may send some locusts. But he's not going to favorably answer that prayer request. Because it's not his will. And this is the confidence we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. What we're doing, we are agreeing with God. And God will meet us. So if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Seek my face. That's to rekindle your passions. To seek the face of God. See, your passion is revealed by what you value. Anybody here ever been in love? I can tell by all the passion. I guess maybe you took it literally. I said, any of you ever been in love? I guess that's how you took it. Yeah, I've been there. Anybody here in love? That's right. Because you said, I'm sitting next to my spouse. I better get it right now. He's getting me in trouble. When you're in love, you want all kind of correspondence with that person. Any kind of communication, emails, texts, anything, a phone call. You just want to have communication with that person, the person you're in love with. More so, you want to spend time in the presence of that person. Because you value them. Passionate pursuit to be around them. He says, if my people were called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Imagine for a moment. Imagine from the neck down, you had a perfect body. Perfect body. Scientifically proven to be the perfect body. Everything proportionally, I mean, just right. Everything, the, every. Just how you would want it. I mean, many of us probably would say if we could make some changes, you know, we probably would make some changes. But imagine have a body that you'd had no change, nothing, everything. I mean, when you got up and you just looked in the mirror, you had to say, whoa, man. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay, I got to do something else. Wow. Now, imagine when you went outside, and when people saw you, they just looked at your body. Wow. Wow, everybody just looked, look at that body, look at that body. And then on Sunday, people would gather around. Large crowds of people would gather on Sunday just to look at your body. It would so, be so magnificent, they would just lift their hands. Look at that body. Look at that body. Oh, look at that body. Can you see that body? Lift your hands. Lift that. Lift. 
your dead body. But see, if they looked at your body and never looked at your face, they wouldn't know you. Because your heart is revealed in your face. Your intention is revealed in your face. What you smile at and what you frown upon is in your face. See, God makes himself known and says that Israel knew his works, but Moses knew his ways. See, Israel knew his hands and what he could provide. Moses knew his face. God wants us to seek his face, to know his face, not just what he can do for us, but who he is. See, when you come to the kingdom, God expected you to be loyal to him and for better or for worse, to always want his face. And so we need to seek him, get into his word, spend time with him, be passionate toward him. And then this last one, turn from your wicked ways, turn. It is in essence to redirect your ways. That word turn, it's the idea, we see it captured in the word repentance. Repentance means to change your mind. Let's think about it. If you have drifted away from from that passionate connection to the Word of God, if you pull the anchor of your faith up and you're no longer solid in the Word of God, you drifted away, then understand your perception of things has changed. In order for you to get back to where you need to go, you need to change the way you think. You need to now turn back and begin to think the way God has called you to think if you're going to have the fire of God. Let me ask you something. How many really want to have the fire of God consume you? How many want to engage in the process of fanning the flames? See, I've discovered something. When you really are on fire, you're not concerned or dictated by those who are not on fire. You just want to be lost in the presence of Almighty God. You just want to give yourself, don't worry about anything. You just say, God, I'm yours. I'm completely yours, whatever you want of me. I'm not worried about anything else. Before you know it, you find yourself just like these individuals. Before God, face down. It's not about me. It's about you. It's not my glory. It's yours. I lose myself in you. Be glorified in this vessel. Not just on Sunday morning, but in every aspect of my life. I want your glory to prevail.